Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. Oh, dang it. Sorry. Sorry. And I'm Jake Bennett. My bad. Sorry. And welcome to episode 126 of the North Meet South Web podcast. Okay, there we go. Got it. <laughs> it's been too long since we recorded. It's been so long since we've done this that you you don't, can't even do it anymore. You know what? Like, we're not going to be those people who spend the first five minutes apologizing for why we haven't recorded, though, because that's the beginning of the end of every podcast. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're yeah. not going to be those people. We missed one week because reasons. I don't even remember what they were, but whatever. It was so, Father's Day, I think, the first one. Yeah. The, the yeah. reason we missed one and then... I don't know. We just just didn't do another one. Correct. Things we couldn't line up schedules, but we have we've decided now we're going to change our recording. So we usually do it. Used to do it Saturday night. Saturday night for you. Yep. Sunday afternoon for me, and uh, which has been fine for you know forever. And um, five years, long time. As yeah, as as the kids have kind of grown up and and gotten a bit older, you know, we're trying to get them out of the house and and do stuff, and it just makes it difficult for me. Um, and, and like you'd know, and, and our listeners with, with kids would know that like doing something in the middle of the day, yeah. trying to schedule something like this in the middle of the day yep. at the expense of like the kids getting out of the house and like, you can do things in the morning, in the afternoon, but then you're rushing to get out early and then rushing to get back to record because of time zones, you know, we, we do it in the middle of the day for me. Right. Middle of the night for me, middle of the day for you. Right. And then like, and then it's like trying to do it in the afternoon, but the kids are starting to get, you know agitated or or they're you know excited or they want to do you know they want to do something in the afternoon so we've decided to shift this to um monday night for you tuesday afternoon for me so hopefully we can get back into a more regular cadence yeah i think it's gonna work pretty good actually it's just gonna be trying to remember well you know what actually we'll probably do both the podcasts on that schedule then right level news and uh, and north meets yep that's cool okay so that'll work that'll work i was gonna say the only difference will be trying to remember which one it is but no we should be good we should be good yep yeah, we'll just do everything on this day and it'll Indeed. be fine. Indeed. So uh, my most What's recent adventure on? has been, um, I was just telling you about it actually. So I have a brand new MacBook Pro M1. Love it. Really great machine. And I cracked the screen on it, which mm-hmm. I'm very frustrated about. Didn't love about. it that much. <sighs> and, my, and Jordan, uh, my boss was talking, we were talking the other day. He's like, I mean, well, at least it's only brand new. I mean, at least you just broke the screen of the brand new one. Like, I'm like, come on. Mm. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and so it was, uh, it was annoying, but the, I'm going to get the screen replaced. But in the meantime, I'm having to swap over to this like uh, older, the, the one that I used to use, which is fine. It's great. It's just you realize how many things you have set up on your other machine when you have to migrate. And so I've been trying to figure out what's the best way to sort of migrate between machines. Because here's the deal. I'm migrating to this machine, but I know in a week and a half, I'm going to have to migrate back to the other one. Right. So yeah. I'm trying to sort of like what I'm wanting to do is I'm sort of using them in parallel right now. I figure like I that's going to be the best chance for me not missing something that I needed off the other one. Now I have a time machine backup and all that stuff. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. But there are certain things you have to just like export. So like your table plus files, you have to export those. You can't just grab those from a time yeah. machine backup. You have to actually grab those and kick those out. Um, same thing with like your alpha preferences and like um I don't know, all the other things, right? So this is yeah. when dot files become really useful. And I've been looking at Michael's dot bot, or not dot bot, but your dot files repo. And you use this thing mm-hmm. called dot bot, which is pretty cool. And so to my understanding, what it is, is you install, so basically you run this dot bot install command. And then when it runs, it runs your dot bot install YAML file or something like that. And so essentially what it does is you have in your repository, all your different dot files, like your Z shell files, your um, bash file, you know, your, maybe your dot bash, or I guess it's your ZH, ZSHRC file, whatever, whatever yeah. it is, your NeoVim mm-hmm. folders, your, you know, your global composer. Um, uh, what else? Oh, my like auto jump files that I have uh, sort of configured to jump around my computer from my command line. All, all those things, right? All that stuff. And mm-hmm. so... Um, that's what it does is it, it sim links all those items from your repo uh, to the locations where they should be. And it runs your all your install commands. So if you don't know about Homebrew, uh, I don't know why you wouldn't know about that. But if you don't know about Homebrew, Homebrew is like a package sort of manager for your Mac, I, sa- I suppose mm-hmm. is what you could think about it like. And so um, it's really handy because pretty much there is a brew file, a cask, if nothing else for like all different sorts of applications that you might want to install. So if you need Skype, if you need Sublime Text, if you need Table Plus, if you need DB Engine, if you need 
Microsoft Teams or Slack or any of those things. You can just say brew, install, cask, and then the name of it. A lot of times there's a, you know, you can go to the formula.brew.sh and you can search for a homebrew formula on there and it'll kind of bring them up and show you how many downloads they have, what have you. And then you can just package all up into a brew file so that when you move over to a machine, new machine, all you say is like brew install or something like that, or brew file install, I'm not sure. And it goes out and gets all of those applications and downloads them for you ready to go. So pretty cool. So that's that's the the ideal path to go from one to the other. And actually, there is a brew uh, package called MAS, like Mac App Store, which you can mm-hmm. then also export any of the Mac App Store items that you have installed, and it'll install those again for you too. So it's a pretty nice, pretty nice little package, and it's all just command line stuff. You know, you don't have to do yeah. any sort of GUI deals. You just run a couple of commands, and away you go. Let your computer sit for a half hour, and you should be all set. So yeah, and like cool. we were talking about this as well before we started recording, is like you really have to get in the habit. Yeah, that's the of, trick of keeping everything up to date, right? So when you install something new, your first instinct because you're just used to it is to go brew install, and then then you're the state of your machine gets out of sync with the state of your dot files. So yeah. it's really a matter of making sure that you're putting stuff into either the brew file and then running dotbot or running, you know, brew. I think it's I think it's just brew. I don't even remember. There's there's a specific command you you run to to use the brew file. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, making sure you do that so that it that it's all up to date and in sync and things like that. And then Anytime you're changing your configuration files or any of those dot files, your Z shell RC or your NeoVim configuration or anything like that, because dotbot will symlink all of that, the files will be up to date. It's just a matter of remembering that you've got to go into wherever your dot files are checked out on your machine and and, and commit them and then push Actually, them back yep. up to GitHub. Yeah, like every, so, couple, every couple of months or whatever, I'll go in there and it's like the working tree is like all smattered with yeah. a bunch of changes. So I just got to make sure I didn't accidentally like commit any private keys or something stupid. And push yeah. that all up. Yeah. 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 So that that's always a bit of fun. And then, you know, when I started my new job at the beginning of the year, it was a matter of like, here's your new laptop. And so I just cloned down my dotbot repo, said, you know, dotbot install, dotbot whatever, and, uh, or, you know, dot slash install. And it just walk away, you know, doing all the new HR things or doing the meetings, whatever you do when you start a new job and they come back and the machine's ready to go. So, yeah. and I think that makes it a lot easier as well when you're, you know, some people will like to just do an in-place upgrade with Mac OS and I like, that's usually pretty fine. Often I'll do like a full format reinstall and that's that's made easier by the fact that I use iCloud for yep, files, oh my gosh, Google Drive at work. Huge, yeah, such a huge So, you know, not, not actually having anything on, on the machine makes it easier to kind of just nuke it and start over. Yeah. And um, like they've made it a bit trickier now. Some of the default, like there's the, the ability to set different settings on mac os using the there's like defaults read and defaults write that you can use in mac uh, os yes. to, mm-hmm. to sort of set different settings, settings. Yeah. like those things i don't i don't know where they're documented like i think i usually just go to frakes and dreese's dot dot files repos and and pull stuff from there i don't know i don't know where the stuff's documented like you can find articles if you google for them that have specific things in there but you, it, you don't if you don't know what you're looking for they're hard to come by but it does yeah. really make the, the setup process and and then there's just some things that aren't made available through that so you've got to go and remember like i always have to remember to go and turn off in the accessibility settings there's an option to like reduce motion and that that makes the mac os experience ah. a little bit more subdued so instead of like things sliding in and out yeah. as you move between yeah popping and like they fade so it's a much quicker and it's better for like not that i do a whole lot of screen recording but when you're doing that and switching between apps and things like that rather than having to you know have all these transitions in there it's just like changes between the apps fairly yeah. seamlessly um so yeah. i usually do that kind of stuff but yeah so things like hiding your dock like hiding your dock or like setting right. your key repeat like how long should i delay before i start repeating characters and how quickly should i repeat characters and those sorts of things like yeah i always use revo- reverse scrolling because i'm a monster i don't know i some i know shaking your head don't That's, like it people are like what reverse scroll so anyway i always change the option however it is um and jordan brill whenever he's in my office and using my mouse he screws with me he'll he'll take my mouse and turn it around <laughs> so, and he'll just use the scroll the other way I don't know. He'll yeah. just leave it that way. And I'm like, what's wrong with my mouse? Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the adventure I'm on right now. But uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm hopefully going to be shipping this thing off like tomorrow maybe. And then, you know, they're, they always have to give you the disclaimer now. 
we may, you know, you may have data loss, so make sure you back this up. It's always completely wipes when you get it back. I mean, it yeah. could be literally yeah. for, they, there could be missing a screw on the bottom panel and they'd wipe the thing, I swear. Always. <laughs> First step. Step one, wipe it. Step two, look at the ticket. What's the problem? Oh, they just needed the screen replaced. Okay, well, I guess we should do that too. Um, so anyway, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's just annoying. So I, I wish I could have just taken it to a store and had them do it. I would have driven like two hours. But the thing is, they can't tell you inventory over the phone. So you just have to drive yeah, okay. and get there. And then they're like, yeah, we don't have that part. So I'm like, yeah, never mind. I won't do that. I'll just ship it in. So so anyway, that's where we're at. Um, I have been recently sort of, man, I feel like I am getting to the point where I am going to have to start really paying attention to separating out things into what belongs to my framework and what belongs to my domain as Mm -hmm. like, which maybe people are like way past me at that point. Maybe they're like, Oh, we've been doing that for forever. And it's like, I I've been doing it forever too. It's not like I literally do everything in my controllers, right? We have classes that belong specifically to our domain and we'll, you know, we'll have things like, you know, I have like a, a services folder where like I just throw all my services. We have gateways where we're interacting with our different third party APIs, basically like our little SDKs, mm-hmm. right? So we we do all that and that's that's true. But I'm saying more specifically around like types. Um Kai talked about this on his talk on Laracon Online about narrowing types, right? And so I don't know that. I was trying to think about like, what is that specifically when he says narrowing types? And so the example that he was sort of giving was there was this idea of applying a discount, right? And to apply a discount, you needed to be able to pass in a discount amount, right? And so in that field that was getting passed in, he originally had integer, like it's just going to be an integer amount. And Mm -hmm. what you ended up discovering was that's a pretty insufficient thing to pass in because an integer can be a negative value. It could be zero. It could be over a hundred percent, right? And the discount shouldn't be over a hundred percent or else you're basically refunding them money. Mm-hmm. So your, yeah. your discount amount should always be like greater than zero, less than a hundred, and it should be an integer value. So um, essentially what he was doing then is defining, he said, narrow your type, narrow your type. And so he created a new type, which was a discount amount. Now, I get what he's saying. It's a strongly typed thing, but I don't know that the word type, like you can type mm. into it, that's helpful. But really, I think what we're talking about is a value object is what we're talking about. Right. So yeah, it sounds looking, like it. Yeah, so I've been looking at uh, like Martin Fowler and there was actually a couple of different guys that I was reading about. They were just talking about the difference between like value objects and data transport objects, like uh, value objects and DTOs, right? And so value objects are essentially there to enforce sort of consistency and business business logic, I suppose, in a specific mm-hmm. instance. Um, so in this case, yeah, your discount amount, it's enforcing some business logic about this value having to be greater than zero, less than 100, and must be an integer. And so when you create this new discount amount and then you pass in a number, it's going to basically validate those business rules. And then it's going to create a typed object that is going to be uh, adherent to those business logic rules that you have built into that type. And now you can pass that type around in your system and be completely confident that it's going to be a valid value that you can use. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to ever check it again. Um, So... I'm struggling with like where exactly to do that conversion, right? So like you have a couple layers where you can where you can do this. You have the request layer. So you have a lot of times we use form requests. And at that spot, you're going to validate probably, I don't know, like I, I don't think you're going to cast it at that point. But then in between after you validate uh, that those values that are coming in are good, I don't know where you actually convert those values to value objects and then maybe those value objects get dumped into a dto which you then pass around um Mm -hmm. have you done anything with any of that stuff like do you have a common place where you typically do that do you have like a you know a layer where you do like some sort of transforming of input request values to value Mm -hmm. objects and 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 dtos um so i'll ask that and then i'll also preface it with one thing freak also had a talk at laracon online with these data objects, right? So I think it was like spassy data objects. Yeah. And essentially what it does yeah. is it allows you to define in one place the shape of this data object. So you can use that as a form request where you can have rules in this data object. And once that data object has been validated, then what it does is you have 
these properties that are available on that data object. Uh, so then you have you can you can basically pass that thing around and have type hints and be sure that mm-hmm. those those values are are good. Uh, you can also use that as like a um, as a JSON resource, right? Um, and pass that back to the front end. And then you can also generate TypeScript models with that. So I mean that's one sort of way to do it. Uh, I haven't looked enough at the package to see if there's some place where you can say take them from take it from the input and and you know basically assign the properties mm-hmm. um you know doing something else i'm not yeah. sure if, if that's a way to do that but anyway i, I guess i figured i'd ask your opinion on that if you've if you've arrived at like the area where you feel like you need to do that or if that's something that's mm-hmm. not really been a concern for you yet I, I think it's something that we want to look at there's just a whole laundry list of other stuff that we need to get through first yeah um i think the, the the main thing with a value object is that it is self-validating and that once you have that object, and, 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 and I think the delineation is if you're passing it around to other processes in your application, I think Laravel kind of blurs the lines a little bit in that you've got, for most things, when, you, when you've got a request, you're doing the validation and then request, and then that's going straight into a model. And so you're not really doing anything with it in the intermediary. But I think using Laravel's model cast and doing your value object conversion at that point is probably the most common thing in Laravel from you know what I've seen. I know that Jess Archer has spoken about it. I don't I don't remember where, but I know that she's spoken about it previously in that she's got these value object uh, things and she does all the casts in there. And so you know that when it goes into the database, you've always got a valid value. And when it comes back out, you're always dealing with a value object that you know is of a consistent state. It's either going to be null or it's going to be a value object of known good data. I think the the difference with the sparsy Laravel data package is that that kind of, it it's more synonymous with, with like a form request in terms of its encapsulation of behavior. So it's not dealing with a specific thing. It's it, like with a, with a specific value. So an address would be a value object. You know, you would validate that it has a, a street number, a street name, a street type, whatever. And that way you could use that to handle valid, um, validation of the data going in. So, you know, you're always passing a valid um, valid address around. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it might also handle formatting. Like it might have a format method on it or a to string, for example, would probably be the more um, the more abstract concept you know you, you can call to string on any value object and it would return a string representation for a a discount it might be you know that it formats it as a as a dollar amount or it might format it as a, a representation of the percentage you know minus 10 percent or whatever for the, the the sparsity package you know it's encapsulating the form request it's doing validation of different fields and 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 things like that you you could conceivably i don't know if it has the notion of like accesses or you know, that that kind of thing where you would do that. And that's where the model cast in, in Eloquent and in Laravel would come in, that you would cast those things to value objects because you know hmm. at the time that you're pulling the data out of the data, well, sorry, you know that at the time that you're putting the data into the database, it is valid. You know, you know that you're putting in a percentage that is between zero and 100 and it's not going to be outside of that. That way, you know that when it's coming back out of the database, it's going to be valid. Like there's no scenario where there's, there's an invalid um, piece of data stored there. And so they're, they're useful for that, you know, phone numbers and addresses and, um, you know, you can go to the nth degree with how much you're actually going to validate and and, and pass through value objects. Um, amounts, currency. I mm-hmm. think Taylor showed that, you know, a couple of Laracons ago when this was introduced using the PHP money library to say, you know, we're going to store currency here and it comes back out as a money object. So, you know, all of those kinds kinds of things are really useful, especially when you're enforcing business logic around the shape of data of, of specific fields as opposed to objects with, you know, discrete values. So you wouldn't get like a person wouldn't be a value object necessarily. Sure. <clears throat> um, I mean, it could be. Yeah, yeah. You could enforce that a person has to have a first name and a last name and and perhaps a title. And so, you know, you could two string that. Um what's I don't know. There's there's examples that escape me now in terms of what a 
to like a, a request a form request wouldn't be a data a value object but parts of that request would be <clears throat> but i think i think where with a dto you want to convert to a dto as early as possible so that you know you're dealing with known good data with a value object you might do that as late as possible mm, interesting which yeah, in laravel that's context would be like at at the database level like right before you insert it you know you'd convert that to and 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 as i said before this this kind of comes down to context in terms of like is the data going from the request through validation straight into the database or are you passing it through some intermediary processes in which case you would probably convert it to a value object sooner so they always you know you've got this thing that you know what it is that it's typed that you've got you know id completion and things like that and then your your accessor or sorry your mutator you know it it will convert that you you know that you need to have a, an object of you know a specific type being passed into that column yeah so i think maybe it's helpful to discuss like a specific example of like what i'm talking about here so let me just share the 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 specific thing i'm talking about so there are a lot of rules around what constitutes an allowed minimum payment amount through our payment portal right so we have different so here here's the list of requirements maybe we have a client minimum so our clients say this is the minimum amount that you can take so we say okay we will take that much and then we have our own rules which say has to be at least one percent of the balance or has to be hundred dollars whichever is greater mm -hmm. so essentially let, let's start with that. So we'll say the payment amount that we're going to that we're going to pass in, right, um, has to be at least the client payment amount, or one percent of the balance, or one hundred dollars, whichever is greater, and that's it. That's that. That's the that's the smallest amount we can take. It must be at least mm -hmm. that amount. Now there is a caveat to that, which is if it's a recurring payment, if it's a payment that's going to happen more than one time. There's actually one other value that has to be considered, which is that there is a specific number that the person who's handling the file on our end can set to say you can't take under this amount. So now you have a fourth amount mm -hmm. that must be added yeah. to basically consider what is the minimum payment amount. So you basically have like four variables. You have cl client minimum, 1%, $100, collector minimum. So there's there's four mm -hmm. of them, right? And then it depends again if it's if it's a single transaction or a recurring transaction. Well, we want to also inform the user on the front end what the minimum payment amount must be. So when they're filling out the form, it's not like a mystery to them, like how much is the lowest amount that they can pay. We show them right up front, like, hey, the minimum amount you can pay on this is X dollars, right? So we have to know that information before we create the form. So in the in the create method, we have to send those values to the front. But then on the back end, you also have to validate that those values are are valid, right? So you basically, mm -hmm. on the back end, then you take those four values and then you pass in a fifth, which is here's the actual pr proposed amount that they are sending through. So then you have to take that fifth number and you have to compare it against whatever that minimum was. And now you have mm -hmm. to get out, uh, is, that a valid, is that a valid amount, right? So that's sort of the yeah. business logic that we're trying to accomplish. And it's just annoying is really what it comes down to. Um, once you validate that, that then though, you have to then apply like fees and things like that. And so I think what I'm trying to write, do right now, what we've, we've kind of been spending some time kind of pulling these all apart. Um, it was actually being all done in the form request, which was horrendous. Absolutely horrendous <laughs> because... All the logic is mixed up in there in the with validator. And so it was just, oh, it was just painful because you could, it was really hard to test. And yeah. it was like 10 things going on in one spot and it was just impossible. And so we're trying mm -hmm. to suss out what are the parts that are actually validation. So the minimum payment part is validation. It really doesn't have anything to do with like casting to a type of object, right? It's just, is it a valid minimum payment amount? Uh, but then past that, we want to cast uh, whatever that ends up being into a 
payment proposal. Uh, I suppose it's actually just a payment. The payment proposal is what comes in. We have to validate that against our minimum payment rules, and then we uh, and then we have one more spot where we have to say give me the fees and all that stuff. As I'm talking about it out yeah. loud, it actually seems like it might not be a bad idea to create a custom rule for that. Now, the thing is, like, it really is never going to not be the correct value unless for some reason they're doing something nefarious, right? The front end should always mm-hmm. catch it. The front end validation should always catch it. If it doesn't, for some reason, somebody's doing something stupid, right? You know what I mean? Like somebody's yeah. modifying the values before they get sent to the back end. So I don't really care to handle it all that gracefully. I'm just kind of like punch them out and be like, yeah, you can't do that. 500. Exactly. Yeah. For whatever. 500 or at the very least, just basically say, nope, invalid. You can't do that. So I'm not super concerned, but it's it has been an exercise in like, okay, whoever wrote this, I know who wrote it, but whoever wrote it was, uh, and whoever reviewed it, that was me, um, they were just trying to get this thing out the door and it's obvious right now. So anyway, we've been spending like a week looking at this thing and refactoring it and it's feeling a lot better, yeah. but I'm really looking at using something like Spassi's Laravel data uh, to help with passing types around. And I think, I think we're going to go that route. So I'll report back on mm-hmm. how, it's, how, how it goes. Um, as I'm looking through the documentation here, there's a lot of stuff that this thing offers. Um, of course it does, right? It's Spassi. But there's some really, really good stuff here. So I'm going to dig into this a little bit this week and see if we can't use some of the superpowers that this thing's going to give us to, uh, at the very least, uh, allow us to type our requests that are coming in essentially or you know make dtos out of the values that are coming in and then be able to use those to pass Mm -hmm. them around here here's sort of the thing on this you can also use form requests we've used form requests before to sort of pass them around the problem is there is no typing on those right you just Mm -hmm. sort of you have to go look at the validation rules in there and like all the ones that are not nullable you know those are going to be filled but like if you pass yeah. a request through to something and you like you can type hint it as like a transaction store request you could do that but it doesn't give you any type hinting on what properties are set on that what or the what they would yeah. be what's what you know what type of that property would be um so this data objects really fills that hole uh without having to yeah. manually cast them yourself it'll just cast them for you so pretty cool right so I think the thing to consider there is that the amount, amount is an amount, right? Sure. It's, it, it is not, and the thing with the value object is that the value object itself is not necessarily business rule aware, okay. business logic aware. Okay. Okay. And amount has to be an, inter, or it has to be a float. Sure. It has to be yep. like, and as long as it's a float, then that's it. So you have a amount object that really just goes, did I receive a float? And then you can access it that way. Your business logic will then wrap around this value object and use methods on the value object to then enforce the business rules. Mm-hmm. You know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't pass the client in or the the type of payment in, whether it's recurring or, or once off. Like it's not concerned with that kind of stuff. You would say, I have a value from my request object, right? So you you say like, here is the request input of amount and you pass that into the constructor of the value object and then all of your operations to determine whether or not that amount is valid would be still done externally to the value object itself so you'd say like if dollar amount greater than whatever and then you and then you could do the comparison there so that that's one thing you could look at and and that's you know how to approach it the other thing to remember is that you can throw a validation exception from anywhere in laravel right and as long as you don't have like a catch throwable or a catch exception you know mm-hmm. something that that would generically catch that validation exception before never it bubbles all the way up to the we top we should come back to that but right? never do that yes it means that you could use the validator to do your own stuff using that value object you could run it through a collection pipeline you know and then your business rules are, are essentially action classes where you'd have one one class that is responsible for testing, like, is it recurring or once off? Is it, you know, is it the per client value that you mentioned? Like, it has to be at least this amount. Is it yeah. greater than 1% or whatever? Ooh. Like, in each the of these things. Yeah, that's interesting right? to do that. Yeah. You, you, using using the actions, um, it means that you've got, like, these discrete, these these single-purpose classes that take a value. You could You could do it through invoke or whatever else. Um, or handle, you know, construct the arrow handle, and 
Uh, but Laravel will do this out of the box using the pipelines. Like it will look for an invoke method and call that. And so, you know, you've got four or five different rules there that you would take this value object and you would throw it through there, right? Mm-hmm. And it would go through and it would return true or false. Or it could just throw an exception in there, like throw valid, valid, validation exception with message or whatever it is, right? And And this means that you can test those things individually. And so you could have a test that is for the the minimum payment amount. You could have a test that is for the, you know, it has to be a minimum of $100 or 1%, you know, that all of that. And then you would test each of these things individually. That way, you know, that by the time you're testing the whole pipeline, you know that the underlying functionality is sound and you can do very high level tests that like it, it goes through. Like you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even necessarily test error scenarios there because I know that the underlying classes are all valid. And then whether you do that like as return false would bail out of that pipeline and then you could do something with that or if you just throw the validation exception directly inside the class, which maybe you would do if you're going to test them in isolation, you would expect validation exceptions be thrown. Sure. Yep. Um, and, and and that way, you know, you could you could do this through your, even in the form request at that point, you know, with validator, do this and then like delegate to that pipeline and then split those. Met- like so rather than doing everything inside the with validator method, you would split all of the discrete units out into their own function. So your with validator method just has like this, check this thing, this, check this thing, this, check this thing, this, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that way, you know, you can look at with validator and know, okay, it's going to do this, this, and this. And then if you need to see what each of those things are, you go into those specific methods. And so that kind of allows you to break it up make it really clear what with, with validator is doing, but also discreetly test all of those other bits and pieces. But yeah, the, the, the value objects, the, the key here is that the value object should validate only that whatever is, whatever it is representing is correct. You know, for a person, it has a first name and a last name. Like you have to pass those things in. For an amount, it has to be a float. For, you know, it might be that it has to be a positive float. You know, it can't be a negative value being passed in there. You know, all those kinds of things. And then the business logic will then use the value object to determine whatever the business rules are around Yeah, um, and go from there. And, and then the last step is to, you know, put that in your database. You you would use the, you know, Laravel's cast to say, okay, it, it accepts an amount object and it returns an amount object, you know, and it does the cast to and from for get and set. And and that way, you know, you're, you know, you're always working with this typed object that, that is always going to be valid. Because it can't be instantiated any other way, um, and you know, like once it's in your database, it has to be valid because it went through all of the business logic stuff, and you know that the value of that object is is correct because it's it's a self validating thing, right? But there there should be no, generally speaking, there should be no external depend dependencies for a value object, as I understand it. Yeah, so it it begs the question for me a little bit, like okay, so um, I think so. I was looking, I was reading Frank DeJong's stuff. And he was just talking about the further you push down the rules, the more value you get out of it. And so I think in some sense, what he meant is, so it's possible that at the very top of the validator, I'm saying something like, okay, are they passing in, let's just say, for example, I'm saying like they're passing in a settlement ID, which basically is somebody has set up, hey, you owe 5,000, but we'll accept 4,000 as a settlement offer. And so they pass in a settlement ID. And at the very top level, I'm saying, okay, that settlement ID exists. And then I'm going to use a, you know, this user can use settlement or something like that. And that does some Mm -hmm. stuff where it checks the value. So that's all happening at the validator level. And that's fine. But then in my next layer, I sort of construct everything. So I say like create a transaction from a transaction store request. Well, it's not concerning itself with any of that now. So that whole settlement thing, like I'm assuming everything's all good on that front. You know, correct. And the idea is if you push that down, well, now you actually gain value in that because anywhere else you're going to construct that transaction, it's going to have to follow those rules. Whereas, like, if you're not using that validator for some reason, you don't know for sure that that's true. Right. So, mm-hmm. his suggestion was at the top level and the validator, you should only really be validating like required fields and types of those things. Like, that's it. Like, yeah. required, like, yeah. this is required. It's supposed to look generally like this. That's it. And then later on, you basically apply your your other rules. So 
for me, it's sort of like, you know, I had said earlier, it would only really be a very odd situation where they wouldn't meet the minimum payment requirements. And it would also only be a very odd situation where they wouldn't pass in a settlement ID that they would have access to. And it'd also be a very odd situation where they would pass in a a uh, recurring payment token that they don't actually have access to. Those would all be very odd mm-hmm. situations, right? So it's like right now, I'm sort of validating those three things at the validation layer because I'm like, oh, well, I want to pass them back a nice validation message. But it's kind of yeah. like it doesn't matter. Like I would almost rather push those down a bit and just say, is there a settlement ID? Okay, if you have one, it's nullable. But if you do have one, it should be an integer and it should be about this long, right? Correct. Or if you have a token, yeah. it should be this many characters. That's kind of what I would expect it to look like generally. And then later on, when I'm actually doing my create transaction from transaction store request or whatever, that's where I'm actually going to do some of the business logic. And then if I have a problem there, I could just throw, like you said, I could either throw the validation exception there or I could throw a, a particular type of exception I wanted to throw, catch it, and then throw rethrow validation exception if I happen to be in the controller, right? right? Um, yeah. So anyway, that's it's it's been an interesting adventure, like um, refactoring all of this. Uh, and so we definitely had it in the wrong place before. And so we're just trying to figure out where exactly to place it. And, yeah. Um, and that's, I, I mean, I had a similar conversation at work. I was, I was reviewing a PR yesterday. And I was thinking about it overnight, and I, and I spoke to the our CTO, and I said, "This this code that we're writing tests for, it does this, right? Yes." I said, "Well, we've got a thing that kind of does this already, um, and now we've got you know two or three places that are all constructing applications. So at, we we take you know finance applications. So annoyingly, we've got this notion of an application model in in our app, which is." <laughs> Oh, that's so fun. It's like there's not... Oh, no. And you couldn't have named it... Of course, you couldn't name it a finance application. You actually named the model application, right? Application, right? Yeah. Of course. So, you know, we've got two or three places that are all responsible for taking some input. You know, sometimes it comes from a form request or for an API request. Sometimes it comes from... Like we've got the notion of leads from our marketing sites. You know, we might take first name, last name, phone number, but we don't like have a complete picture for an application. So we would create an application based on what was in the lead and then we've got from like sometimes data gets pushed in from salesforce and so that and so we've got like three or four different places that all create applications from some input in some different way and so when i did the salesforce integration it was the notion of these like application initializers that you pass things in there and i said you know well we've already got that and that's like tested that like given some inputs it creates some objects um, some models in the database. What's you know? Why don't we just refactor this new service that I'm reviewing to use that existing functionality rather than re-implementing this every time? Yep, no worries. You know, as long as it does what it says on the tin. I said, well, we're writing the test now, which makes the refactor part later easier because we know like it it works now, does exactly what we need it to do, and when we refactor it to use that, it's it's still going to pass. So we've got this consolidation, this refactoring of like you know before everything was, this is what we need to do. And so we go and build that thing. And it doesn't matter if we've got a similar thing somewhere else. This is what we're asked to build. So we'll build this again. And so I'm starting to see this across our app in a few different places where it's been like build build the application to fit the business needs, but not necessarily build it in such a way that it's maintainable. Because now, yeah, you know, if we change a field somewhere or we change a behavior, we've got three or four different places that that all needs to be updated. Right. Whereas you know, consolidating it now. And and this is, you know, it it heralds back to JMAC and Yagni. It heralds to um Sandy Metz and you know duplication is better than the wrong wrong abstraction and things like that. Where th- this is all fine. Like and and this is the conversation I keep having. I said, I'm not here to to dump on what you've done before and how you've done like the business is profitable. We're we're fine. But if we want to be able to move quickly, make changes, adapt to the business needs, we need to start thinking about these things a bit better. And so that's that's why it's so important to have, like not even for us, but in general, it's so important to have tests in place to make this, you know, refactoring, um, standardization, consolidation, whatever you want to, however you want to look at it, whatever you want to call it, make it easier. And and obviously making sure that it's not detrimental to the, the business. You know, we're not refactoring for the sake of refactoring. We're refactoring for the sake of removing duplication that we now know is duplication that we don't want to have. 
that were consolidating behaviours and, um, you know, really making sure that we've got a robust application that that we can, you know, maintain long into the future. And so that, you know, it comes back to build build for today with, you know, less regard for what might happen in the future and then tackle that, you know. And so this is what you're finding now in, in your application. It's what I'm finding in my application. Yeah. It's what's happening to, you know, thousands of applications out there is, you know, if you if you have the opportunity to refactor, do it. But don't don't be ashamed that, you know, you've done something for now because you haven't planned for the future because you don't know what the future is going to look Correct. like. Yeah. You know, we have these conversations all the time. You don't know. Like, you know, you've got... Three six nine, like what are we going to achieve in three six nine twelve months? So who knows? Like totally at the beginning of the year, our twelve month goals were very different to what they are now, because you know five months into the year we merged with a with another company, and so your goals kind of change, and you have to align with with that. So trying to like you can you can say like this is our long term vision, but trying to say like we're going to have this done in nine months, like nine months is a is a is a stupidly long time to to kind of set expectations for anything. So, um, that's six weeks. I'm not sure. I'm not sure all of that. I'm not sure all of what I just said really fits in with what, but like refactoring is where I'm getting. No, it totally does. No, it actually does make really good sense, which is like, what, what can I do today? That's going to provide value for the business. Right. Mm. And then, like you said, like, I mean, you just kind of have to do it as, as it becomes necessary, like to refactor these things. So you don't want to write garbage code, right. And just slop it up there. But at the same time, I mean, as long as you're writing tests, I feel like you're serving future you, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, be able to refactor those things later down the road. Um, cause you, you don't. And so a lot of times, you know, and this is probably you, and this is probably some, you know, whenever you have new developers on the team, they look at, they look at something and they say, this makes no sense. I don't think this is actually useful. Let's tear it apart and start over. Right. And mm-hmm. there was, there was actually an article I was reading where like somebody was like, there's a fence in the middle of this field. Don't know why this fence is here. Let's tear it down and just get rid of it. And the person's like, mm, maybe we should figure out why the fence was there first. Right. And then figure out if we should take it down or not. Like it doesn't, it's don't just assume that there's a fence in the middle of the field for no reason. Like there's some reason somebody put this thing up. Yeah. Right. And typically when you see that sort of code and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. This is really dumb. I don't know why that, I don't know why you would ever return. You know, you should return this object or that object. You should never return both of them in an array. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And then you find out, Oh, actually, you know, it takes a little, it takes a little while to get there. Right. But anyway, I, I guess I say that just to say that, you're gonna you're gonna have times where the values uh, that you're trying to provide for the business today are going to have to be changed later on down the road because your target's moving, right? It's like yeah, I, I heard this guy say, um, oh, what was he? I'm trying to remember what it was, what the idea was. It was basically like shooting at a fixed target versus shooting at a moving target. Um, so he said, like, do you want a rocket that can go really fast? but can only you can only like target one spot and it's going to take three minutes to get there. Or would you have a rocket that takes six minutes to get there, but it can adjust based on the target's location as you move, right? Or as it moves, right? So it's like if you if you plan out six months and you're like, this is the target we're going to hit, you're going to get there in six months. Excellent. But the target may have moved by the time you get there. Whereas you could create functionality that's going to take a little bit longer to get there, but you're actually going to be hitting objectives along the way, right? You're, you're making yeah. small adjustments along the way as the target moves, because you don't know what it actually mm-hmm. the business needs are going to be over the next six months, over the next 12 months, whatever. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all of that. So. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a hard sell to a business because their businesses are generally so ingrained in wanting estimates and knowing that they're going to get value for the time they're spending on something at some determined point in the future, which, you know, and, and as we all know, estimates are terrible. Estimates are seldom right because they're estimates and, and estimates are usually an estimate of the size of the problem, not the size of the solution. You know, I estimate, you know, when you're estimating upfront before you've done any discovery, anything like that, it's hard and and the project they're on at the moment was like a 12 week thing and and like this is the date you know it has to be done by this date so the estimate doesn't even matter like if i estimate it's going to take 4 months but you've got 3 months to do the work does 
like what's the point of spending time on the estimate? You know, let's let's just start building. We know what we need to build. Let's start building and iterate on it. And so the the thing that I'm trying to do now is to to figure out how can we deliver small pieces of functionality more frequently rather than es- you know spending a week estimating that this is going to take this amount of time to do and then you know cuz then you're just doing a waterfall project really you know delivering something at the end of some period of time um so it's a it's lots of fun lots and lots of fun yep so there was one other thing that i was going to mention about that uh about the project that i'm that i'm working on right now but i don't remember exactly what it was so no worries it's a it's it's probably one of our biggest applications and so it's been it's been interesting trying to refactor it. It's been living for a while, and it's the one that actually you, you worked on for a bit there. But yeah, we've got an issues list that's getting trimmed down pretty quickly. Uh, the, de- the de- developers are doing a good job. And actually, you know what? We've talked to this group from India. I mean, like, okay, so there's all mm-hmm. these, you know, Laravel India, whatever. These right. guys, so I had them work on something for me. I almost don't want to give out the name because they do so got such good work, and it's like, I don't really want to... <laughs> I you don't want them to do work for other people. Yeah, exactly. fine. I, yeah, they're awesome. The, this guy, yeah. oh my gosh, it was some of the best code I've read. I know, I know. Like it's maybe, <laughs> maybe a crapshoot. Maybe you just have to find the right people. But like these yeah. were people that like had sponsored Laravel or Laracon before, and man, super, super good. So like, I'm really excited. We've got our our couple of devs who are doing a really good job. But then we've got some of these other devs. Well, Wilbur Power is still doing a couple of things for us too, like on on the side, and then we've got. This India team, so it's like we've got a couple different areas that are that are working on stuff, and um, man, it's I'm so glad that it's become. I guess I don't want to say easier to find good Laravel devs, but they're out there. They are out there. Yeah, and uh, I mean, literally, India is going bonkers. Did you see how many people they had on their uh, Laravel? Uh, oh, sorry, Laracon online. How many people they had at their at that one building where they had a Laracon viewing party? There was a no. there was a ton Who of people. Behaves. There was yeah. a, there was a ton of them, and so it's just going wild, man. And so a lot of smart people over there, a lot of people who are really you know getting after it. And uh, I'm super excited for the Laravel India scene. It's uh it's going it's going well, and and I've been really pleased with our work with yeah. with some of the people over there. So that's yeah, we'll, good. It'll we'll be um it'll be it'll be cool for the folks over in India to get their official Laracon next year as well. They're gonna get they're gonna get Taylor in a, a sari. Whatever those things are, is that what it's called? <laughs> the traditional, the yeah. traditional dress or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I know what you're talking about. I don't know. I'm not sure what it's called. Though. Yep, we're gonna have to. Uh, we're gonna have to buy some plane tickets, Michael. Speaking of uh, speaking of buying, buying plane tickets, what's going on with Laracon AU? Yeah, you coming, dude? I would love. It's gonna to. be. I'm still. I'm still waiting on the venue to confirm dates. I'll probably have to give him a call actually. But we we're looking at October, sort of mid. Anywhere between mid-October and the end of November um, next year. Sweet. So it's, uh, it's going to happen and uh, I'm looking forward to it because, you know, we haven't, we haven't had a Laracon here since you had, did you have, uh, you had two 2019. Them, right? You had two of them. Yeah, we had 2018, 2019 yep. were the two that we've had. And, and like 2019, I think, um, I think ours was maybe the last Laracon that was held anywhere, I think. I don't, we haven't had... Like other than the Laracons online, I don't think there's been a in person event. Was there one? Did the EU do theirs? Was it this year or is it coming next year? I don't mm. remember. I don't know. I think it's coming. I don't think they did one this year. Twenty? Oh no, they did. In April, Laracon EU they had in person. That's right. Yes. So, um, but I think I think ours was the last Laracon that was held anywhere before the pandemic started. And so Laracon EU kicked off in April. Um, I know that Laracon EU is happening again. Laracon India is happening for the first time. I know that Taylor has said he's planning on bringing Laracon US back. Um, I've I've spoken to a few sponsors already. I've spoken to a few um, people that I want to get over to speak. So it's, it's early days, you know, we're still 12 months out, but, I'm uh, I'm excited to, you know, get the show back on the road, as it were. Absolutely. Yep. It will have been it will have been four years, you know, since since the last Laracon. That's crazy. Um, that is event. crazy. So it's it's just wild. I was it's talking time. to a friend of mine today, saying, you know, we're going to organize a, a barbecue next month to catch up with 
you know, people that we all worked with. And, and it's like, you know, I haven't been at that job for uh, 10 years now. Wow. Um, so wow, that's it's crazy. just crazy, crazy how long or how quickly and how much time passes. So, yeah. You're going to throw another shrimp yeah, on the it's, barbie? It's happening. Another shrimp on the throw barbie? shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> so it's we're hoping, I'm, I'm, you know, people, people have been asking me about it for a while. Um, you know, on and off, I've had people sort of message me um, on Slack, on Twitter, you know, when's it happening again? Are we doing it this year? Um, uh, I've had a people, like even people reaching out interested in sponsoring, which, you know, we haven't had before. So there's there's definitely pent up demand for it. And I'm I'm kind of kind of relieved a little bit that, you know, we had the pandemic and that we couldn't have it because, you know, we had Live Born. That's right. Yep. Um, it would have been tough. 2020. So like it would have been hard um to kind of manage you know Eli and Liv running around you know for for Ree to kind of have them for a couple of days by herself um so you know Liv will be 3 this time next year um Eli will be 5 which is crazy to think about in and of itself but they they should be a little bit more manageable at that stage um so you know kind of as i said thankful that that that, that ended up the way that it did um, but yeah, definitely very keen to sort of get back to it, um, you know, to catch up with people to hopefully get a few friends over because, you know, it's impossible for me to go over to the US, but being able to get a few people over here as speakers would be exciting. Um, I know that we had some people lined up for 2020 um, before we had to shut all that down. So hopefully they're, they're still in a position to be able to come and join us and Help put on a great event again. Indeed. Hopefully I can put on a great event. It's been so long. <laughs> oh, you can do it. You got it. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. <laughs> hey, should we wrap this one up? Let's do it. Okay. We are on episode 126. Is that what it is? That is correct. Episode 126 today is sponsored by madeinthestates.com.au. <laughs> if you are an Australian and looking for your fix of Made in the States snacks, go check out madeinthestates.com.au. Get yourself some flaming hot Mountain Dew. Get yourself some mm. nerd clusters. I'm serious. You should contact these people and ask them to sponsor the show. Just have them send you a variety box once a month or something. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. But seriously, Work Vivo <laughs> is our sponsor. So thanks, Work Vivo and Joe Work Lynn Viva. and all the folks over there. Go check them out. It's like social media uh, for your corporation. They do a really good job. Yeah. Target your corporate values. Um, and it's a really great way to engage your employees, especially with remote workforces. So go ahead and check out Work Vivo if you get a second. This was episode 126. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. You can find show notes of this uh, for the show at northmeetsouth.audio slash 126. Hit us up on Twitter at Jacob Bennett, at Michael Dorinda, or at North South Audio. And uh, write us up in your podcatcher of choice. Five stars would be much appreciated. Until next time, folks, keep validating those objects, those requests, and keep pushing stuff to value objects and DTOs. We'll see you next time. <laughs> wow. Well.